which um, is um, calling Israel to account for their unbelief. Uh, two great questions are before the reader in this book. Um, uh, whom should you trust? And uh, whose is the true kingdom? Who's really in charge around here? Chapter 7, King Ahaz. This is 8th century B.C. King Ahaz believed that um, the only hope for stability for his throne was to trust in Assyria. And when Isaiah went to him and offered him a sign that God was going to ask, he refused a sign. Um, there, are, there are things I think I'd rather trust than God. Yes? And so he's, he uh, specifically refuses trust in God in that situation. Uh, the effect of that is the giving of the prophecy of, of the coming of Emmanuel. We've been observing uh, in the last two or three weeks that we've been working in this passage, we've been observing that there are four names that are at the forefront. Uh, in chapter 7, at the beginning, it's Isaiah and Sha'ar Yashuv. Once again, look, look at chapter 7, just so you'll see it and then say it. Uh, so, um, verse 3. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go with your son, Sha'ar. Yeah, you, you can say it the way you want to when you're gone. Just, just don't say it the any other way with me. Sha'ar Yashuv. Sha'ar Yashuv. Uh, Isaiah is a Hebrew name that means the Lord saves. Sha'ar Yashuv. The word Sha'ar means a remnant. And Yashuv means will return. Then in verse 14, we are introduced to the name Immanuel. And we've been saying right along that Immanuel has a, a, a dual significance one is God is with us in that he is helping us and will do what is necessary to preserve the Davidic house and the nation of Judah. But later, as we'll see today, in fact, in chapter 9, um, the name Immanuel becomes far more significant because now it will be God with us. All right? Not just God is with us in his general providential care, and in his specific covenantal activity to preserve Israel and David, God himself will be with us. Are you with me here? So we're watching as, this, as this, these four names have controlled the message and will control the message of Isaiah through the rest of the book. Um, there is a fourth name in chapter 8, the one I wanted for my son, but my unresponsive, unsubmissive wife would not let me use, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Uh, loved that name for years. When our, when our daughter was going to get married, I knew she had chosen the right man because she told me that he wanted to name a son Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. I mean, this man is a man of, of substance. I'm, and, and, so, God gave him two girls. and God gave him two girls. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we named them Beulah and Hepzibah. <laughs> also biblical names. Uh, 
Um, um, so, so these four names in chapters 7, and uh, especially chapter 7, but 7 and 8, encapsulate uh, the message that we're dealing with in these chapters 7 to uh, 12. War is coming, judgment is coming for the house of David because the house of David doesn't trust the Lord. So God's going to judge the house of David. He's going to judge Judah. But Imman and Ael, God is with us. Um, that means then, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, the Lord saves. And finally, that means finally, a remnant will return. God isn't going to judge Judah to the extent of wiping out the, the national life of the, of the people, nor is he going to drag them off in captivity. But what he's going to do is leave Judah so restricted, it's going to be as if they're standing in water. It's a man standing in water with only his neck and head sticking out. So all that will be left pretty much after this judgment hits is the city of Jerusalem and surrounding fields and villages. Uh, So things are going to get pretty bad, but the Lord is with us, and because God is with us and the Lord saves, there is going to be a remnant even after the the Great War. Does this make sense? So this is where we've been. In chapter 8, we saw, God, we saw Isaiah stretching the word Ale with us. At one point, he simply says, there's, there's coming war to your land, O Emmanuel. But your land, O Emmanuel? You, you, I can say that. Uh, didn't we sing a song years ago, folks? This land is my land. This land is your land. Yes. I'm not so sure now about California, but... Yeah. <laughs> or the New York Island. Uh, the New York Island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but, but um, I, okay, so maybe all that's in view is God is with us. Emmanuel has a place where he's grown up. He's, this is his land in that sense, but as the passage keeps expanding... Um, it becomes evident that Emmanuel is the owner of the land. And subsequently, uh, the word Emmanuel is not, is not left untranslated, but it's actually um, spelled out, it's translated, for God is with us, the text says. And we, come, we, we read in chapter 8 last week a judgment passage on the house of Ahaz and instruction to the disciples of the Lord in the days of Isaiah. Trust the Lord. Judgment's coming for them. You trust the Lord. When you trust in the Lord, he is a refuge. Um, I'm so glad the pastor read that. Uh, Let go the rope. Mm -hmm. I've had that in my computer for years and have read it with with delight from time to time. It was delightful to hear. But... but, uh, uh, Israel's going to hit the barrel several times. Judah is. Ahaz doesn't believe it. He believes he can control his future because he can make an alliance with Assyria. But God is saying, no. And he's going to say that again in where we're going today. Chapter 9, we, we know verses 1 to 6 pretty well, or 1 to 7 pretty well. But the rest of the chapter is hard for us. Um, because we haven't spent much time in it. But it's coming back to this same point. Folks, there is nothing to trust but the Lord. 
And here, I, it's important for me that you understand what it means to trust the Lord. It doesn't mean simply, yeah, I know the gospel, I trust the gospel, I've trusted Jesus for salvation, I'm born again, and I'm going to heaven. In fact, you may well go to heaven, but you're not going to spend your time there. It's the earth you're coming to. God created the earth for humanity to rule, and so our destiny must be fulfilled. Otherwise, God's plan is, is, um, is frustrated, and God's plans are never frustrated. So, so um, uh, it's not merely trusting God about your past and your future. It's trusting God about your present. I wondered what this meant and prayed a prayer you should not pray back in the late 90s. Lord, you've shown me so much about grace. There's, there's something in Psalms I've read over and over, and you will remember this once you hear it. What does it mean to take refuge in the Lord? Um, don't pray that prayer. God will answer it. <laughs> okay. Uh, and what he did was let, he led me into some things that were just terrifying for me. And I had to walk into them um, with no evident protection. There was no obvious protection. Our, our niece is having to face this kind of thing now. Uh, she's having to go to court and face her husband, who has been abusive to her and her children. And she has to walk in trusting the Lord. When you trust the Lord in such a situation, does that mean that you will have no pain? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean that there will be no danger at all? No, doesn't mean that. Does it mean that everything's going to turn out, that the judge will hear the, the two arguments and go in a way that you and I would consider just? No, it does not. But I still have to trust the Lord anyway. Does it mean with Jonathan that everything's going to be fine? No, it does not. But we have to trust. I, folks, when my, when my grandfather died when I was 10, mother relied on him for her strength. And uh, she stayed home one Sunday morning, couldn't go to church. He was, he was in the hospital and dying of kidney disease at the, in those days. And she kept praying, Lord, why won't you heal my daddy? Because my, my grandfather was a tower of strength. He really was. He was a man you could, you could count on. But eventually, the Lord convinced my mother, look, I'm keeping him alive because you keep praying. He's in misery because you keep praying. Now, this, I, this has nothing to do with Jonathan. This is just my mother's situation. And finally, she gave him up, and two days later, he was gone. Are you with me here? Does it mean that everything's going to turn out the way you want it to? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that God was preparing Mother for something that was going to happen in eight years. That it was nine years. Something that she needed to understand that her strength was in the Lord and it was not in my grandfather. I've just realized this in these last few weeks and months. I haven't thought about that event in decades but it just occurs to me he was getting mother ready for when her life fell apart are you with me here and she struggled in that time when her life fell apart but in the midst of the struggle 
she knew, even though she didn't know how to trust God, she knew that was the only place she was going to get help. Okay? She, had, she was beginning to learn what it te- meant to take refuge in the Lord. The Lord led me through some other things, not nearly as frightening to most people, but they were terribly frightening to me. I remind you of the old Excedrin commercial that said, no headache is small when it's yours. <laughs> so if I told you the problem, you would think, well, why is that a problem to you? Because it's not your problem, that's why. It's mine. <laughs> so, but in, in walking in to the midst of the trouble, you don't know what God's going to do, but you can't give up on him either. You can't let go. All you can do is cling. Am I making sense? All right. So chapter 9, then, um, verses 1 to 7, it is. One to, there are reasons to have the, 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 the number 6 on the screen. I won't go into them. They're not important. But, but down through verse 7. Nevertheless, and let me pick it up back in chapter 8, verse uh, 21. He's talking about the judgment that's coming on Judah. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only darkness. And the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is far north Galilee, just, just so you'll be aware, so that the next statements will make a little more sense. Um, but in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. Dividing spoils, does that remind you of anything? Yeah. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Still functioning here. Um... For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the, in the day of Midian, going all the way back to the book of Judges and the story of Gideon. Um, why does he do that? Why does he call in this historical reference? Yeah, Why? How does what God did 500 years ago help me today? His, uh, his manner of, of dealing with us. Yeah. God's still the same God, number one. But number two, what I've been saying over, over time, what God has done in the past really is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future. But he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Are you with me here? So they're in affliction. God's going to deliver them as he did in the days of Gideon. Um, Verse 5, 
for the trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. You're going you're gonna to burn boots. Why not bodies? Because body's not in the boot anymore. Amen? <laughs> the point is, if you're going to be burning boots, you've already won the war. Yes? For... And here's how, here's how you know this is true. Notice the word for at the beginning. For a child will be born to us. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Isaiah 714? Ahaz, you can trust the Lord in this because there's a child that's going to be born. And when that child is born... Before he knows how to distinguish the good from the bad, the, two land, the, the, the kings of the two lands that you fear are going to be done away with. Are you with me here? So the birth of a child heralds deliverance. Chapter 8, the birth of a child heralds deliverance. Chapter 9, the birth of a child heralds deliverance. Are you with me here? The theme is working through. We have the four names still at work because the Lord saves... Yes, God is with us. Yes? Uh, there is coming war, but a remnant will return. Does this make sense? All right, so a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign in the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. As I've been studying this this last couple of weeks, I've thought there are places where prophecies are given And if people would respond in faith, they would be fulfilled almost immediately. When people don't respond in faith, the fulfillment is delayed. And I wonder what might have happened if Ahaz and his people had responded in faith. Are you with me here? Uh, I'm I'm just pondering that, just trying to think. I have to teach a lesson tomorrow in Houston on prophecy and how it works, and it's specifically related to... Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. So I've got to be talking to students about how prophecy works, and I'm thinking about this more and more in these days. The, the point is, I know and you know that once we get into hypotheticals, almost anything can happen. Yes? But what if they had responded in faith to this message? Maybe the child to be born... What can we say about this child? Look there at verse 6. child will be born for us. Um, A son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named. And here, as we had from chapter 7, four names, now we have four more names. (laughs) Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What can we say about these four names? 
In the ancient Near East, kings often had throne names. Um, have you ever wondered about uh, some of the throne names in Israel, in Israel's history? There's a guy, the last figurehead king of Judah was a guy named uh, Zedekiah. Um, means the Lord is righteous. His personal name was Mataniah. Are you with me? Yes? David, it's, there's some evidence that the name David was a throne name for him. Um, it probably means something like beloved one. His son has a similar name, Yedidiah, uh, the, the, the beloved by the Lord, Jedidiah, we know it as. Um, Solomon is therefore a throne name, Shlomo, his peace. Are you with me here? Zedekiah, I, 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 I don't know quite what to think of him. He's, he's counted as a wicked king, and he is a wicked king. I think maybe he had a, had a desire to be different because he would confer with Jeremiah and say, it's kind of like some people I've known in the past. You listen to one counselor and you say, oh, yeah, that's right, that's what we need to do. And then another guy comes in and tells them something different and they do, it, do exactly the opposite. I had a college president like that some years ago. Uh, um, and when he would bring Jeremiah in, Jeremiah would give him good advice, but then Zedekiah would talk to his political guys and they'd turn him bad. And I just wonder if he was not just a weak-willed man. Man. So why would you change your name from Mataniah, Matani, um, I can't now count, pronounce it in Hebrew, Mataniah means uh, the gift of the Lord to Zedekiah, to the righteousness of the Lord. Did they really mean that? Well, evidently not. Are you with me here? Throne names don't necessarily mean a lot. In Egypt, a pharaoh typically had five names. And so people have tried to divide this uh, four names into five. And if you grew up, as I did with King James, four, unto us a child is born, <laughs> unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, comma. Yeah. yeah, that's the way we were raised with this. Um, but in Hebrew, almost certainly, I must read this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What does it mean, Wonderful Counselor? He's a kind of counselor. The word Pella, yo eights, Pella, is a word that means something that just makes you stand slack-jawed when you see it. Your, your mouth just gapes open. You can't imagine. You can't imagine the kind of wisdom that could come up with a plan like that. Are you with me here? Is that, he is a marvel of a counselor. He is an astonishing counselor. The word wonders in Hebrew in the Old Testament, when you read about wonders in various places, it's related to this word. Things that just make you think, what in the world did I just see? Are you with me here? So he's a, and the word counselor here would mean somebody not who's trying to help him get out of an addiction. <laughs> and this is a counselor who is, who is giving counsel for government and making plans that you just can't even imagine. Matthew, what, pardon? Matthew 22, when Jesus answers, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the Herodians, he just yeah. takes them one by one by one. Yeah. He doesn't oh, yeah. them apart. Yeah. He gives them yeah. answers they cannot respond to. Yeah, it's, I, I call that a debate. And, and so each of the major groups in Israel, in, in Judah, 
opposed Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there's the scribe. And then Jesus comes back with a, with a, um, a poser. Um, whose son is Messiah? Well, he's David's son. Well, how, does he, how is he his, um, his father? How is he his Lord? Some, quote Psalm 110, the Lord, the, mas- uh, the Lord said to my master, sit at my right hand. And so Jesus assumes that David is the author of Psalm 110, and, and the Messiah, who is David's son, is David's master. How does that work? Are you with me? So, so wonderful counselor. Next is mighty God. Yes? Jim, you mentioned the government aspect of this. I remember here in the Net Bible that it translates that extraordinary strategist. Yeah. Is that a good That's a good, yeah, yeah. Extraordinary is, is uh, good. Astounding strategist would be perhaps a little better. It's, it's much more shocking than extraordinary it would be. Yeah. Uh, so, so why would he call him mighty God? Well, think about it. Um, there are all kinds of names. Uh, this would be one place where it would be nice to have some background in Hebrew. It's not essential, but it would be nice. But most of the names of the kings had something to do with God. Um, so every name that ends in ayah has the name of the Lord in it, Yahweh. Um, or Yah, any, any word that has Yah, like hallelujah, has the name of the Lord in it. So all of them, pretty much, not all, but even in the northern kingdom, the names were largely um, what's called a theophoric name namely uh, honoring the Lord in the name, and they typically are prayers or affirmations about God. So Zedekiah means the Lord is righteous. Okay? Um, So, mighty God, couldn't that just be one of those same things? The answer is not really. Wherever mighty God is used, El Gibor is the Hebrew word expression, El God, Gibor, who is a mighty man or is a hero in battle a warrior in battle, El Gibor, when that's used, it only refers elsewhere to God himself. So who is this child that's being born? God can't be born. So who is this child who is being born? I hear it is his first coming and his second coming. Yeah, right, but they don't have that advantage of all that extra knowledge. Yeah, and that's my point. That's why I think it's written for us. Yeah, Isaiah... Uh, uh, J. Alec Motier, whom I've referred to on several occasions, Motier made a marvelous proposal about Isaiah, the whole book, and that is that Isaiah, as he's getting these messages, is getting glimmers of what God's going to do, and he begins to ponder about what does this glimmer mean? What is, what, what, what is this shining on? Maybe, maybe, maybe the child to be born is Hezekiah. Had you thought about that? Hezekiah means the Lord is strong. Are you with me here? Maybe? No. No, can't be. Hezekiah, Hezekiah fails the test in chapter 39. So, well, maybe, you know, and maybe it's my own son. No, because El Gibor is not an appropriate name for his son. Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. Are you with me? So what are we to make of this El Gibor? We'll put it together with the big name that we got from chapter 7. We got three in chapter 7. Isaiah, Yashuv, and Emmanuel. What does that mean? 
is it now is it now the case that I'm no longer thinking about the providential presence of God but the actual presence of God but God isn't a baby how can God be a baby he can be anything he wants to but he can't be born it's contrary to the character of God to be born that means he is not independent so so you and I know what Isaiah didn't have access to because we now have Matthew and, and the explanation of these things. But then the next name, uh, you have Everlasting Father. And that's a good translation. It's quite appropriate. I don't know what... Uh, mine has Eternal Father. Um, but in Hebrew, it is Avi Ad. Avi Ad. Uh, Avi means father of. And Ad is an odd word. Uh, it could be a preposition that means to or toward. But since Hebrew has such a small set of uh, combinations of letters to produce words, you have lots and lots of homonyms in Hebrew. Uh, so you have only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and all the, all the words have to be uh, built on either two- or three-letter roots. You change vowels and prefixes and suffixes and so on, and that builds your vocabulary. But that means a lot of homonyms are going to show up. And this word ad is used elsewhere as a noun that means eternity. And I wonder if a, all the translations you have uh, are, are quite accurate, but I wonder if another one is not possible for this, father of eternity. Why not? Um, Eternal Father, Everlasting Father are perfectly appropriate translations for this, word, this phrase. But Father of Eternity is also. And I just puzzle. Well, and who, who is this child? Is God, is God with this child? More than that. More than that. Then what, what are we saying here? This child is God. To an ancient Israelite, this would sound like blasphemy. This child is God. And because of that, he is Sar Shalom. He is Prince of Peace. He's Prince, but he's God. Jesus. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I need to say a little bit about more than that. Uh, Sar is a word that means commander, for example. They found some inscriptions in Israel. Um, Lasar. Uh, Lasar ear, uh, and and they're they're puzzling about it. They're trying to work this out. The best I've heard of this, and I this this is forced upon me a new view of the word ear. Ear is a word that usually means city, or at least that's what I was taught in first year Hebrew um, too many years ago. Uh, but now they're beginning to say that word ear may well mean fortress, and the sar would be the commander of the fortress. The sar ear would be the commander of the fortress. So a sar is the one who commands peace, the commander of peace. Is it akin to the Lord of Hosts? Uh, no, no, not really. When Jesus said, I and my Father are one, yeah. he would be. Yeah, he, that's, that's where we get some help to understand this that Isaiah didn't have. Uh, the, the point, though, is this child, this passage is taking Emmanuel and expanding it in ways we didn't know when we read chapter 7. 
Because in chapter 7, it's a child to be born in Isaiah's lifetime, and Ahaz's lifetime. It's going to be just a few years. And all the kings that Ahaz is terrified of uh, over will be destroyed, and, and uh, Ahaz's kingdom will remain stable. But he won't trust that. <laughs> and then in chapter 8, we began to see Immanuel showing up in ways that were a little bit odd. Your land, O oh, Emmanuel. And now in chapter 9, we begin to see this child that's to be born. Again, I say, chapter 7, there's a child to be born. Chapter 8, there's a child to be born. Both of them anticipate fulfillment of prophecy. And now in chapter 9, there is a child to be born whose birth anticipates the fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Yes? So, the real ruler is not in Assyria. The real ruler is a child to be born. The real ruler is not Ahaz. Because Ahaz has effectively um, renounced his status as, the chi- as, as a scion of the house of David. Do you remember, we've made point of this two or three times in our study. In Isaiah 7, um, uh, Isaiah asks, um, well, let's go back there just because I, I can't uh, get it precisely in my mind the way I need it to be. Um, verse 10 then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz ask from the, a sign from the Lord your God yes your God how come Isaiah can say that because Ahaz is at the house of David they have a covenant with the Lord so the Lord is Ahaz is God he's an unbeliever but he has sworn allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and now David are you with me here yes no all right When he refuses to ask for a sign, verse 13, Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my, not your God, my God? He has renounced his relationship with the Lord. Are you with me here? So this child is going to be the heir of David who can rule. Folks, um, probably you know this. Do you know the name Coniah? C-O-N-I-A-H, Coniah? No? Okay. His, his full name is Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. Um, um, Coniah was such a bad king, such a wicked man, that Jeremiah received a, a message from the Lord, write this man down childless. No. No descendant of this man shall prosper sitting on the throne of David. And yet, in Matthew, when, turn to Matthew chapter 1. It's right after Malachi. So, uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 1. When I trace the genealogy of, David, of, of Jesus, let me pick it up at verse uh, 7. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. Jehoshaphat fathered Yoram. The Lord will exalt. Joram fathered Uzziah, whose name means the Lord is strength. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, 
Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah. This is probably the legal claim of Jesus to the throne, right? But the legal claim of Jesus invalidates him as an heir. Turn to Luke chapter 3. He's a descendant of Jeconiah. So he can't get the throne through Jeconiah. Go ahead, brother. Yeah. In in Luke chapter 3, you do the genealogy uh, backwards. So you start in verse 23 with Joseph, the son of Haley, son of Mattat, the son of Levi. Let's go down the uh, generations um, to... uh, to David in verse, 30, uh, in verse uh, 31. Do you notice there's not a king mentioned in the entire list from uh, uh, verse 27, which is at the time of the Babylonian captivity, return from the Babylonian captivity, from verse 27 down to verse 31, there's not a king mentioned until you get to David. Who is the, who is the descendant of David through whom Jesus is is descended. No, no, son of David. It's Nathan. Are you with me here? So how can Jesus be king? Because he's still son of David. But the human line was, was disqualified. Folks, think about how it got started. What kind of man was David? He was a warrior and a poet and the sweet singer of Israel and he organized the temple and the priesthood and he committed adultery and premeditated murder and that's the beginning and Coniah is the end. Jack of all trades. (laughs) David is the beginning and Jeconiah is the end. But God orchestrated it that Jesus would come through a different line, namely the line of Nathan, still a son of David. Are you with me here? You will say, but Joseph wasn't his physical father. I'll say, absolutely. So how is he a son of David? Folks, listen. Do you remember the gray squirrel? I mean, some of you do. Um, Children were in Sunday school, and the teacher was patronizing them, as we always do. Children, what's gray and furry and gathers nuts for the winter? The kids all drop their heads, because if you don't make eye contact, you don't have to answer the question. <laughs> Come on, children, what's gray and furry and gathers nuts for the winter? And finally, one little kid eased a hand up. Okay, good, good, what, what is it? The kid says, well, sounds like a gray squirrel, but the, the answer is probably Jesus. <laughs> I thought you'd heard that. I thought I'd told that recently enough. You remember. Uh, so, folks, if you ask me, how can he be a, a son of David when he doesn't have any physical lineage from David? You see, I've treated this as being the genealogy of Joseph, not because that's what the text says. It doesn't say it's from Mary. I wish it did. I, I want it to be Mary so bad, but it doesn't say that. Okay says Joseph. So what am I to do here? Folks, we got a gray squirrel in heaven. 
who, who can solve all our problems, he can create the, geni- the, the DNA of David in Jesus with no problem whatsoever. Are you with me here? Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost that without some understanding of these dispensations, this does not, it does work with, if you understand the Bible and the, and the, let's see, the dispensations, this is what God wanted, known then. All right, but if Paul comes along, the Apostle Paul comes along, how many times does he say, I want to teach you a mystery? Uh-huh. A mystery. Yeah. Now, this, this is the mystery. Yeah, this is one of them. All right, he's teaching. So the mystery, God's timing obviously was not meant to be understood until Paul corrected it. I can't, no other I, I, I got into a discussion with a student last week, last Monday night, who said, do you mean to tell me that the prophets didn't even understand their own messages? I said, well, look, what is there in the text that tells you they did? Well, if, they, if they're speaking a message, they ought to understand it. I said, why? I said, Daniel didn't. And one of the other students pointed out, 1 Peter chapter 1 says they didn't. They, they wondered, what are we talking about here? What is this time? What kind of time is this we're talking about? What's happening? Are you with me here? So... Isaiah is still puzzling about this. You and I have the answers. The point I'm making is he is father of eternity and the commander who brings peace. Are you with me here? So verse 7, his dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. We're We're getting into trouble here because... As one of my professors said, if all we're talking about is an unending line to David's family, there's always a new generation, always a son born, always a godly king. If that's what we're talking about, this language simply doesn't work. The only thing this language will fit is a king who will reign everlastingly and nothing will ever change that rule. So... um, uh, its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and, uh, and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. How can this come to pass? The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why won't you let him come in? I told you I think about my favorite professor who was, who's, who was talking to a friend. His friend had been in a gospel meeting. And the preacher said, Friends, I have done all I can do to lead you to salvation. I have preached the gospel to you. God has done all he can do to bring you to salvation. He sent Jesus for you. Now, you must, you must respond. And then he said he asked my friend to pray. He said, I didn't know what I should pray for. You know, God's already done it. All he can do. And I said, I felt like I ought to pray to the people. But he said, instead, I did what the pastor wanted and what the people wanted. God, I know you've done all, thing, all the things you can do to save these poor people, but couldn't you find something else to do? It's <laughs> 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 so the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will accomplish this. I'm reading a commentary on Isaiah. It's written by someone who believes strongly in free will. And he keeps saying, yeah, this will all work when the people respond. When the people respond. When are the people ever going to respond? In fifth grade, my teacher would say, 
It's five minutes to recess. If you children aren't quiet for the next five minutes, you're not going out of recess. I never talked in class, even when I was called on. <laughs> if I could get out of it, I wouldn't talk in class. I thought, we're not going out. Because sure enough, I just see that. Yeah, you couldn't be quiet for five minutes, so we stayed in during recess. If we can't even, if we can't even abide by the rules for recess, <laughs> how are we ever going to respond such that God will bring finally Jesus back? Are you with me here? So what's it depend upon? The zeal of the Lord. He is, he is more concerned about vindicating his own name and his own plans, his character, than we are about seeing justice and righteousness on this earth. He's far more concerned. Unfortunately, the road to that is through the unleashing of sin. Um, Satan has a freer hand in the tribulation than he's ever had in all of history. And yet, brothers and sisters, when Satan's hand is freed, you have more turning to the Lord than ever in history. Are you with me here? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So whose is the real kingdom? Well, it's the Lord's. What follows in chapter 9 that we'll look at in uh, subsequent studies is, is taking us back to chapter 8. Paul wrote Isaiah. Isaiah is going to say in chapter 9 uh, the same kinds of things he said in chapter 8. And there are four parts to it. Look down there. Just anticipate this. Uh, uh, verse 8, the Lord sent a message against Jacob. It came against Israel. All the people, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, will know it. They will say with pride and arrogance, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with, with cut stones and so on. Then at the end of verse 12, in all this, his anger is not removed and his hand is still raised, uh, uh, raised to strike. By the way, that's quoted from Isaiah 5, two, two times 7 and 12, it shows up in that chapter. But then the next little, little um, strophe ends in verse 17, in all this, his anger is not removed and his hand is still raised to strike. The third strophe goes down to verse 21 and the last two lines in all this, his anger is not removed and his hand is still raised to strike. And then chapter 10, 1 to 4, brings this to a climax. The last part of verse 4, in, this, in all this, his anger is not removed and his hand is still raised to strike. And what he does is what we saw, what we've seen elsewhere, chapters 7 and 8, judgment must come on Judah because First Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. Judgment starts with the people of God. Then it moves out to the nations. So the rest of chapter 10 is about God's judgment on Assyria. And then chapter 11 um, will be, uh, I'm sorry, it's also a passage about the remnant who is, who is going to return. Uh-huh. Sound familiar? And then chapter 11, celebrating the coming of the kingdom. It's, it's time to stop. In fact, it's past. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll uh, press on here. Thank you. I'll see you next week, or not next week, but uh, in days to come. Uh, Peace be with you and all those of your clan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message. I need it. I need to be reminded 
that no matter how bad things get, in fact, that is your plan. Your intent is to show the deceitfulness and the destructiveness of sin. Sin is its own, is its own punishment. Um, we don't think so. When we are the recipients of sin and its dealings in the world, it's always painful for us, and we'd love to see it just ended immediately and quickly. But you have a great plan to show your righteousness, your justice, your grace, and your mercy all together in the same in this same world. So, Father, what you do, do quickly, please. Bring the reign of sin to a quick end. And let us enter into the joy that will be your kingdom. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.